0: shant malutra i'll be chatting with ed cohen the middle road of your brief is a thought leader platform enabling social change and impact globally the startup blends media with edtech to promote and upskill the audience Publications, articles online courses podcasts and videos across various topics now example it could be economics and development economics finance and sustainable finance impact valuation and statistics well-being art culture And focus is also majorly on United Nations 17 Sustainable Development Goals. The mantra of the startup is to spread affordable, quality higher education. You can check out www.themiddleroad.org. Today I am with a fascinating guest and I've I've really, you know, you'll love today's conversation. It is something very different from Dr. Ed. And to give you a brief description, Dr. Ed suffers from an incurable ailment, yet developed self-reflection and self-care. That helps him to flourish not despite but because of his illness. Now these are his words. Please welcome Dr. Ed Cohen. He's the professor at the Rutgers University and a Psychagogue at Healing Council, a Therapeutic Practice for Healing. An accomplished author, Ed's recent book on learning to heal or what medicine doesn't know actually draws on 50 years of living with Crohn's to consider how Western medicine turned from an art of healing towards a science of medicine and it deeply reflects both the medical practitioners and their patients. With his new book, uh, Cohen advocates reviving healing role for all those whose lives are touched by illness. Other books are a body worth defending, immunity, biopolitics and the apotheosis of the modern body and the talk on the wild side towards a genealogy of a discourse on male sexualities. As a PhD from Stanford University in modern thought, this is something we'll chat about. Summa cum laude, uh, honors English and mathematics from Georgetown University. Hello, Dr. Ed Cohen. Uh, Thank you for joining the Middle Road platform. Oh, thank
1: you for having me. It's lovely to meet you.
0: I just have to say that again, I mean, it's it was very fascinating reading your book. I think it's just mind-boggling, yeah, not only the work which you have done, but I, as a literally, I, I mean, I myself, uh, you know, write so many things. I think it's just fantastic to sort of learn so much from you. Very artistic, you know, it just reminds me of some of the older classics I used to read. <laughs> I was just uh, amazed. I
1: think it was just
0: mind-boggling for me. Oh,
1: thank you so much. I really appreciate that. <laughs>
0: So Ed, let's start. Uh, first, let's understand the uh, term psychagogue. Uh, no, no, we know we have heard a lot about pedagogy. And you've described this actually in your LinkedIn profile. So would you like to explain how it is different from pedagogy? Sure. Um
1: so uh so first of all, uh psychagogy and pedagogy were basically twins. They both existed simultaneously in antiquity and in Greece. And so basically I'm talking about a Western lineage of knowledge practices. Um, And pedagogy, the word literally means the teaching or the conduct of children. Um, And the idea of pedagogy is that you will try to inculcate someone with some knowledge or practice or, you know, some sort of capacity that they didn't have. And that by the end of the process of pedagogy, they will have learned this thing for themselves. So whatever the pedagogue is doing is just inculcating a kind of knowledge that could be a practical knowledge. It could be a conceptual knowledge, um, but that fundamentally it's about you know uh, entering into a process in which by the end of the process, the student has acquired some capacity that has been transmitted by the teacher to the student. And, you know, and, you know, the reason it's called pedagogy in the sense of the teaching of children is that there's always an asymmetry, right? Between the teacher, who's the adult, and the student, who's the child, Um, psychagogy. Uh, it sim- has a similar kind of etymology, but it means the conduct or the leading of souls. So the word psyche in Western culture, I'm not sure you know, what the equivalent would be in South Asian culture. I mean, every culture has different kind of ways of reflecting on what it means to be a living being. Um, uh, but in, in Western culture, and actually the notion of psyche, if people who do work on the ways in which Western concepts develop actually trace the lineage of the concept of Psyche to South Asia and to actually shamanistic practices. Um, and the word Psyche means, can mean many things, but it roughly means soul or mind or some kind of um, essence of the person that is, you know, a, um, that has the capacity to be larger and, and grow and develop, you know, through the course of a person's life. So psychagogy, unlike pedagogy, um, is a process where it's not so much about the person, te- there's a person teaching who's leading another person to uh, to knowledge that already exists, but psychagogy is a a, di- a a dynamic relation between two people. It doesn't have that necessarily power hierarchy of, you know, of adult and child. And the goal is that the person, well, both people ideally, in a psychological racial le- relation are transformed in their sense of their being in the world of who they are in relationship to themselves and to each other. So instead of the communication of kind of practical knowledge or some kind of capacity, um, psychagogy really is about helping people to reflect on who they are, and to understand that that we are a lot of, oftentimes, most times, much we are much more capacious than we necessarily live in our everyday lives, and you know, as, so the role of someone as a psychagog is to hold that to say, you know what, I believe that you uh, actually have more capacity to live a life that is more rich for you, more meaningful, more vivid whatever your values and goals are, then you currently are allowing yourself to uh, understand. And that through conversation, that perhaps you'll come to a bigger sense of who you are and you'll be able to be in the world, not just in relationship to yourself, but the way that you know you're in a better relationship to yourself is you're in a better relation to other people, right? That, that the whole point of, you know, what we call working on ourselves I mean, you know, it is we we want to suffer less. I mean, nobody's, you know, well, some people do like suffering, but uh but <laughs> but but by and large, you know, we we do try to give it up or you know, move beyond. Uh you know, but the but also because the way that we experience uh ourselves, you know, in a bigger capacity is actually our relationships to other people change, our relationships to the world, our relationships to our communities, our nations, you know. Um, So psychagogy is a sort of much more comprehensive um, kind of uh, dynamic relation between people. That's about growing and developing and learning, but not about just simply acquiring knowledge and, you know, storing it up, especially these days, you know, in technical fields where, you know, knowledge acquisition is, you know, basically storing up capital in the bank, you know, kind of thing. Um, so yes, yeah, so psychagogy is more about um asking questions about who do you want to become, how do you want to live, what's important for you and how how can you achieve that? And so, you know, my role model in this, the the kind of you know, most famous psychagogue was Socrates, um, you know, who went around ancient Greece asking people, Well, what do you think you know? And then it turned out nobody knew anything. You know, and that was, and that was important for them to know that there were things that they didn't know, and they had a lot yet to learn, which, you know, sort of as a teacher, I feel like that's a basic principle. Like we always have more to learn. I mean, what else is life for?
0: Actually, I, it's fascinating you talk about it. Uh, I think you have used one of the quotes of Socrates that I think I'm biased because I know what I don't know. Something on those lines. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, Exactly. Very fascinating character. Really want to you know, read more. So this is great. You know, you bring psychology, uh, f- philosophy. And you talk about psychology and you know how the intersection works. Uh, that's really fascinating about uh, the way you approach things, and that's what I, you know, saw that when I started reading more about your work. Now we we'll go to the you know the, the basic your life has revolved uh, uh, ever since you were diagnosed uh, for Crohn's disease. Now you. Yourself has been, you know, you're a huge motivation because you, in spite of um, diagnosed at a very early age, you learn how to succeed and triumph in a me- measurable manner. Brief idea about Crohn. Crohn is an autoimmune, chronic, inflammatory bowel disease that can sometimes also causes life-threatening complications. You you have mentioned in your introduction, uh, with reference to your website, that Crohn actually developed self-reflection and self-care, which I talked about within you, which uh, made you flourish not despite but uh, not despite but because of your illness. Very proactive and positive attitude. So you could speak about your self-awareness journey from a very early age and how it has shamed you as a person. And then we'll, of course, come to one, your, uh, another hero, which which, uh, Michelle Foucault. So, Um,
1: so, I mean, just to be clear, it, from the very beginning, it wasn't a good thing. And, you know, when I was 13, and I was very, very ill, and I was first given this diagnosis, and told that I had a kind of illness, that I didn't know the word, like they, that my doctor said to me, well, you have an autoimmune disease. It has no cure, but it still has no cure. And the best we can do is try to manage your symptoms. Uh, And I was like, well, what is this autoimmune thing of which you speak? And, you know, so then they had to try to explain it to me, a 13 year old, I was a child, right? So, So at first they said, well, it's like you're allergic to yourself. Now, that was not super clear. What does that mean? I'm allergic to myself. So then they tried to clarify and they said, well, it's like part of yourself is rejecting itself. And again, this was not like fully comprehensible to my adolescent mind. And so finally they said, well, it's like you're eating yourself alive. Okay, that's a very vivid image. I hold on to that, but that was not a helpful image. Like to be told at 13.
0: I I can understand it a very young age. I went through accidents. I do understand how much it would have, uh, had a effect on. Yeah.
1: And that's one of the things, I mean, in, in most of my recent work is that medicine has a lot to offer us. And, you know, there are many, I mean, I would personally be dead without it. I'm not, but when we receive medical care in the sense of any kind of medical care, it could be Ayurvedic medicine. It could be a traditional Chinese medicine. It could be, you know, the kind of bioreductionist scientific medicine of the West. But whenever we receive treatments, we don't just receive a treatment. We also receive an explanation for what is happening to us, a frame of reference within which, you know, we we, we are helped to understand what's happening to us, right? So when we have a treatment, it's not just something that affects our bodies, it affects our minds, right? It gives us frameworks to within which to think. And so at 13, I was given this framework, you know, to try to understand what was happening to me. And it was not a helpful framework. And not only that, I was put on very intense medications. I was put on a medication called prednisone that's very, very intense corticosteroid and has many, many side effects um, of which I was not told anything because at the time doctors didn't really feel that they had to explain these things to you. And uh, so, you know, basically, I went through my years, you know, between the ages of 13 and 23, jacked up on these incredible drugs. Um, Basically, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure of taking them. but many people take prednisone. It's given for everything from, you know, allergies to brain tumors. It's a it is a kind of miracle drug. I don't disregard it. But it has these very powerful, both physiological and psychological side effects, including depression, anxiety, mood swings. You know, I put on huge amounts of weight. You know, I was, you know, many, many very unpleasant, you know, kind of side effects that nobody kind of acknowledged as being caused by the drugs. They were just like, well, you're a teenager. That's why you're so, you know, anxious. That's why you're so, you know, moody, whatever. But it wasn't, it was like it was because of the drug, so that's why I usually refer to it as my adolescence on steroids and and Unfortunately, even though I was on these major drugs it, they never really suppressed the symptoms, which are basically I was incontinent, like I had constant diarrhea, uh horrible you know kind of cramping uh you know bowel obstructions, and then you know there was all these secondary kinds of uh elements of the, of Crohn's arthritis and many things to do with your eyes. I mean, autoimmune illnesses are, are, are fully systematic. The whole body is, you know, involved, but in my case, the lining of my small intestine was the kind of main place where inflammation, you know, was occurring. Um, and, you know, so I lived this kind of life for 10 years, went between uh, 13 and 23, um, you know, constantly rushing for the toilet, constantly, you know, worried about, you know, was I going to soil myself? Um, and then at the age of twenty-two, twenty-three, 23, I got really, really sick again. Um, and I had uh well, I had a small bowel perforation, my, my intestine closed, and, um, and it actually burst. Um, but the hospital I was in, at the time didn't notice that. Um, And as a result, I got these huge infections um, that got progressively worse. And eventually I had an abscess that was on a major blood vessel um, on my intestine and it it kept bursting. And then finally it burst and I was bleeding. I was bleeding to death. Um, So I had a, you know, what people describe as an out of body near death experience. I had the, I was floating around, you know, while they were rushing me to um, emergency surgery. And you know, fortunately I survived, that, I'm very grateful for that. Um, and when I was still in the hospital recovering because I had these major infections, so I had to be on antibiotics for a long period of time, I spontaneously started going into these trances. Um, and you know, there was nothing in my background that prepared me for anything like this. I mean. I, I, I always joke, you know, my parents were dogmatically atheists. I mean, they were just, my mother was a Marxist. My father was a physical chemist. You know, all that mattered was matter. You know, I, that was just, nonetheless, you know, there I was in the hospital and I could start listening to music and I could go into this place where there was all of this light. And, and I just thought of it as pain management. I could take the light and I could wrap it around you know, where my intestines had been taken out and, you know, where my liver had been carved up and, you know, just to, to modulate the pain. And then I could just kind of fall into this, just place of really peaceful, very spacious. Um, and, you know, at first it freaked the doctors and nurses out because they would come into the room and they would try to get my attention and I would be elsewhere. Uh, but then they realized that they just turned off the music, I would come out of it. And, and, uh, the and you know, I didn't really think nope, you know, I didn't think about that as being a special experience or my the doctors didn't. But then when I finally left the hospital, I had an exit interview with my surgeon and he said to this thing to me that was like it just like seared itself into my brain. Um, he said, You are the sickest person I've operated on in the last five years who's still alive. And I don't know how you got better so quickly. And that just I mean, that turned my world around. I mean, both because on the one hand, it, I had been in denial about how sick I was. I mean, you know, when you're 23, you don't want to be like, I'm dying here. <clears throat> so I was like, oh, I was dying. Okay, that's really, I have to take that. Industry. But the more shocking thing was my, this incredible surgeon. I was at Stanford University Hospital. It's one of the major medical centers in the world. And here's this very fancy surgeon saying to me i don't know how you got better like i operated on you but i don't know how you got better and that was like really like eye opening mind blowing for me because you know he was saying i can do this i operated on you you were dying you survived but and he, so he knew what he did but he didn't know how i got better so quickly and that really kind of made me stop and go well how did i get better Like, what was that? And uh, in the wake of that experience, I had a number of, you know, as you can imagine, if you anybody who's like had uh, accidents or, you know, shocks of any kind. I mean, you know, when your life is unsettled in that way, it's unsettling for your whole life, you know? And so afterwards I had one day, I just had this like really clear, you know, insight that I don't know where it came from. But that said, you can either learn to live your life differently, or you can keep going through these kinds of experiences over and over again. And I was like, "Ooh, I'll pick the first one, not the second one. (laughs) The second one I had, and I don't like that. So the first one. And, you know, and once I kind of was like, I'm interested in healing, I'm interested in learning more about there that that then suddenly it was i was open to all of these different kinds of teachers who i would never have been interested in before but suddenly they became amazing you know interlocutors they gave me frameworks they gave me tools they gave me a perspective on myself they helped me to open you know to understanding the world in different ways and you know so so it was it took like a good decade before uh, I, my illness became something that I began to understand might not just be an affliction, you know, might not just be the source of my suffering, but also might be, might be giving me an opportunity to live otherwise, to learn to live otherwise. Um, and that's what I've been trying to do for the last four decades is to try to learn to live otherwise, because by and large, when I look at the world that we live in, it's kind of crazy. Um, you know, I mean, if if not, you know, really seriously pathological, if we think at the level of global warming, or economic systems, or, you know, I mean, we all could use a lot of healing, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah.
0: So, it, so, you know, you went through a very traumatic experience, uh, and you connect, and you, of course, you, you become, uh, you know, uh, that had a significant influence. When you go back, and you know, recounting the experience, do the memories come back? Uh, do you... Do you feel that made you a bit stronger? But you know, there are certain experiences you can never forget. Of course, there's a, so much of pain, not only f- physically. I mean, it's actually the mental trauma which you went through would have been substantial. How would you? Yes,
1: think- well, you know, absolutely. That you you make a very good point, and I feel really very lucky. I mean, as I said, I've had really amazing teachers for many years, but also the, for me, the process of writing this book called "On Learning to Heal" or "What Medicine Doesn't Know." it was also a healing and a learning. Uh, and and so partly by finally, it took me a very long time to be able to write and speak about what happened to me when I was a child, what happened to me when I was in the hospital, especially, you know, different kinds of healing practices. Uh, you know, I still had some part of me that was like, you know, materialism is the only thing I can really talk about. I, I mean, you know, even now, you know, when I say spirituality, I really put that in quotation marks, and I have a lot of question marks about what that means. But what's really clear to me you know, now that wasn't clear to me at an earlier point in my life is we are always more than we know. That is to say, knowledge is a really important resource that the kind of organisms that we have are. But we have much more intelligence than just knowledge alone. Um, and so when I think back to earlier moments, I have a lot of compassion for myself, you know, um, that took a long time to really be able to go, oh, you know, that was really bad what happened when I was a child and, you know, and the way I had to live at such an early age, I mean, like between the ages of 13 and twenty, I basically was like an old person, you know, I wasn't like a young person whose body was growing and developing and being healthy. I was like going like I was going to the doctor all the time. I was taking major drugs that were affecting not just my body, but my mind. You know, my body was out of control. I was incontinent, but I was also on these medications that made me gain 80 pounds that, you know, my face was giant. You know, I was I most at least in in you know North America you know, most people in the normal course of life, that's something that happens, you know, at the end of your life, you know, when you start having to go to doctors, and taking all these different kinds of medications. But I was doing that as an adolescent. And so when I reflect back on that, I'm like, I do, I can feel how difficult that was. And I have a lot of compassion. And, and as an adult, it gives me um, some space to give myself a little slack. It's like, hey, look, You've been through a lot in your life, (laughs) you know, so you're not perfect. Hey, you come a really long way. Like this is literal. This year is literally my 50th anniversary of having Crohn's and, and I'm like, it's my golden anniversary. I'm like, and that is a win. You know, like, I'm like, most people are like, I'm getting old. I'm like, you know, I'm 64. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm 64. When I was 13, I thought I was going to be dead, you know? I'm like, my friends are all like, oh, I've got aches and pains. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so alive. I do yoga. I ride my bike. I do, you know, I'm like this. And so definitely I have a different perspective. And so when I remember the things that happened, they are still painful things. But then I'm also appreciative of, oh, you know, I'm really lucky because I was able and I had enough support and enough resources to experience them as opportunities to become a much more expansive human being than I might otherwise have
0: been I can I can you know empathize and also you know you did uh, your PhD from Stanford that's a fantastic achievement excellent academic career which is like among maybe the top one person globally uh, before I come there I'll sort of uh, talk about your intellectual guru and hero which you which you mentioned um, <laughs> and a literary critic, Michel Foucault. Actually, Michel Foucault, I started watching. I watched just a couple of videos. And of course, he had a huge influence on your thinking. I want to personally ask you, which of the books or publications would you re- recommend to the audience which you think would like to
1: know? <laughs> so, um, yeah, Foucault is my intellectual hero. And a friend of mine, Ardell Lister, made a little video about me talking about why Foucault is my intellectual hero. And it's called Flower Power. So, if you're interested, you can look online, Uh, Ardell Lister, uh, it's A R D E L E, and Lister L I S T E R, and the film is called Flower Power. Um, But uh, Foucault, as you may or may not know, I mean, is one of the major intellectual figures in the European tradition in the 20th century. And, you know, the way that I kind of describe what one of the ways of describing what Foucault's project was, was to ask us to think almost in a way that like socrates to ask us to think about things that we take for granted to that we accept as self-evident about ourselves and about the world and then to reflect on well why do you think that's self-evident and is that necessarily so and if it's not necessarily so, how might we live otherwise i mean that's the general intellectual project um and Uh, I was very fortunate that uh, when I was in college in 1978, Foucault uh, had written a book called The History of Sexuality that was first translated into English in 1978. And uh, as a young gay man uh, reading this book and Foucault was also a gay man, uh, who was older had lived through a different kind of history. Um, that book uh, really rocked my world. Uh, he really asks people to reflect uh, on why, if, and why they think the notion of sexuality is something that is uh, gives us access to a way of understanding what's true about who we are. Um, He asks us to think, uh, to understand that actually sexuality is is not uh, a trans-historical concept, but is actually a new concept. Like the word sexuality only appears in the English language in the 19th century. If you asked people before the 20th century, what's your sexuality, they would have no idea what you're talking about. I mean, it was completely not a way of thinking or, or acting in the world. Um, and understanding that this very basic category that had uh, informed my life, because when I, when I was first diagnosed with Crohn's, I actually had two pathologies because that in 1972 homosexuality was still considered a psychopathology in the United States. Uh, so, you know, to, um, to try to understand, well, what is this category that every, I and everybody I know, you know, take for granted about who we are, but in fact, turns out, developed only at a particular point in time and had certain kinds of very profound effects, not just on individuals, but on how people live collectively, especially in relationship to the development of capitalism, that, that sexuality, you know, turns out was like a lynch between biology because it seems like it's something natural, but also economics because it was the way that population developed, right? So, um, so, you know, I read that book when I was 20 uh, and it kind of blew my mind. Um, And so I wanted to know more about Foucault and then it happened when I was in the hospital uh, because I couldn't attend classes because I was so sick. I did a directed reading <clears throat> on Foucault's, you know, the, the books that Foucault published. And he wrote a book called The Birth of the Clinic. Um, and it's about the development of clinical medicine, which is basically hospital medicine. And again, hospital medicine has only existed since the beginning of the 19th century. And it imports a whole bunch of assumptions about uh, what, what illness is what diseases are how we understand what it means to be sick but also you know the role that doctors play and the kinds of knowledge that doctors are inculcated with and how they're trained to look at the world so what he uh ta- what he, he thinks about in that book is like the history of what he calls the medical gaze well reading that book in the hospital while I was being constantly examined gazed you know, scanned, probed, you know, was shockingly, I because I had, you know, I had never thought about how medicine basically uh, is, how invasive medicine is, not just like on your body, but on your mind. Like the ways that we think about what's happening to us and, and Foucault, you know, reading Foucault, that just, it gave me so many new tools to, to reflect on what was happening to me. So that, you know, that, that convert, you know, I don't know that, that when clinched it, you know, that was like, Oh, okay. And since then uh, I have, you know, followed everything. I know everything. I teach Foucault all the time. Uh, I'm teaching Foucault right now to 18, 19, 20 year olds. And precisely about this question about sexuality, because of course for 18, 19, 20 year olds, sexuality is all they think about, you know, so so to challenge them. Uh so the history of sexuality is a it's a great book. It's a really hard book to if you've never encountered Foucault. What I tell people that have never really engaged with Foucault and they want to uh understand something about him for the first time is to read the interviews with him. There is a book that's called Foucault Live. It's a collection of interviews across 20 years. And he's really, really good in conversation. He explains his ideas and and other people's ideas, Marx and Freud and Nietzsche. And and he is very lucid, very um, to the point. so if you just want to like dip in and find, and they're short, right? They're short. So each one, you know, it's like 10 pages m- most, right? So, and they're a beautiful ones. I mean, some like, you know, one of the ones I love teaching is called Friendship as a Way of Life. And it's about why, to, why have we put so much stress on sex and sexuality? And why don't we understand friendship as a really important way that we connect to other people and how, you know, and and what difference it might it make if we, not just individually, you know, we all have friends, but if we collectively valued friendship as like, as important as our sexual relations. Um, there He has many beautiful short, and that's a very short piece. Um, uh, so that's what I would recommend to people who've never really taken a Foucault's to read any of the little interviews in Foucault Live and just get a sampling. And then if you are interested, you could check out the books. <clears throat> he's also better as a lecturer. He, he, um, he was a professor at the Collège de France, and he gave uh, a lectures every year. He basically wrote a book every year. And those books are uh, they're, they're easier to read because he's just talking. And he's a beautiful lecturer, just beautiful. Um, so I guess that's what I would suggest to you is like try their interviews, try the lectures. Then, if you want, read Discipline and Punish. Read History of Sexuality. Read Birth of the Clinic. Read History of Madness. I mean, but there's a lot of material now. People have uh, you know published every you know laundry list he ever wrote.
0: He actually <laughs> speaks in said. French. So, French is a beautiful language. He's always uh, speaking in yeah. French. I think he didn't speak in English much. Uh, he Has he.
1: Towards the end of his life, he got. Um, he started coming to the U.S. Actually, if you want just like a fun book, um, there is a very fun book called Foucault in California. And this is actually based on. Uh, he started teaching in the U.S., he started coming to the U.S. in the 1970s and 1980s, and especially to UC Berkeley uh, in, in the Bay Area in San, near San Francisco. And um, this is a little book about how he was invited to give a lecture at a college in Los Angeles by a young gay philosophy professor. And Foucault said, okay, I'll, I'll come down, but you need to take me to Death Valley and we need to do LSD. And- mm-hmm. They say
0: America <laughs> during that period of time. You know, <laughs> it sort of, of course, came globally.
1: Absolutely. Coming back, I mean, come on now, every, you know, LSD, psilocybin. I mean, one of the things that people are now understanding was that the, that these substances were criminalized for really, uh, really mostly racist and, um, and very conservative reasons that we're not, you know, we're not medically sound. And in fact, what we're, we're finding now, like 60 years later, is that there are a lot of really helpful medical and psychological uh, effects that different kinds of chemical substances have. So one, and Foucault, so Foucault, his father was a doctor. And when he was young, he used to take some of his, doc, his father's Drugs from the pharmacy, and uh, there's an interview that's in that book Foucault Live I talked talked about. Where one of the things he says is, you know, well, we put so much emphasis on sex, but what if we just thought about pleasure in a much broader way? And, and he says one of the things we might have to think about is more and better drugs. And uh, and I was like, okay, that's good. That's interesting. Uh, <laughs> So this book, Foucault in California is about Foucault doing this acid trip uh, in Death Valley with this, but it, it's, I can't even explain it, but it's a much better book than even that, because the story of how this interview came to be published is itself a whole other story. It's a really, it's a very good read. I highly recommend.
0: Now, I, your topics are within a very aesthetic space. You have done your PhD in uh, modern thought. Uh, I would really be interested. How do you sort of correlate that? If you could explain the work now, and R- Rutgers, you are doing a lot of work on uh, women's equality. Take an case. Uh, do take us through what does modern thought mean, and uh, any practical implications, which uh, with your recent work.
1: Sure. So actually, modern thought is not esoteric. Uh, and modern thought is what probably most people who live in parts of the world where capitalism has become a dominant way of organizing everyday life, something like wage labor, uh, are living uh, within the terms that were developed uh, during the period of modernity which people periodized it somewhat differently in different places, but roughly from 1492 from when Europeans uh, colonized North America and which was not just about the colonization, but was also a kind of change in the entire economic sphere because they were taking silver and gold from the indigenous peoples in the Americas and then inserting them in, into the world market and with and Spain and Spain was having, you know, these trade relations with China. And so the, the whole development of the world economic system, you know, happens from the 16th century onwards and in that period of time in in europe uh, which you know it's slightly different than you know the history of south asia of course you know because uh you know then you know the british colonized india and that was a whole that changed everything but uh the but there was also a kind of change a, a big change you know technologically economically but it really importantly religiously in the world where christianity was dominant you know until the 16th century there was the church there was one church and then in the beginning of the 16th century there was the Pro- protestant reformation or from the catholic point of view the protestant revolution uh that then broke up this one monolithic way of understanding uh religion um, which then also changed the um significance of monarchs in Europe who were understood to be God ordained, you know, that God gave them a special little, you know, ointment or something, and they got to be, you know, the ruler of everybody and the owner of everything. Um that that the these assumptions that had come through, you know, that and developed for basically a thousand years. Of what we call feudalism uh, began to break up, and ideas that we now take for granted, uh, like the idea of, like say, the individual, or that the most important thing about being a, a person is having a body uh, rather than you know being a soul. Um, that uh, the idea of rights, like human rights, individual rights, that was invented, uh, wage labor. Like, you know, in agrarian societies and feudal economies, you there wasn't wage labor. You weren't paid by the hour to work and to do repetitive tasks, right? So that only became possible because people began to assume that we had a body. The body was our property. We could enter into a contractual relationship with another human being to sell our labor power to someone else for money, and that that money was what we would use for subsistence, so that that body could go on living right that feudalism like a, rural economies that's not how they function and you know and and feudalism you know the lord you know takes a portion of of the produce that you grew, but you still have the food that 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 you grew you know you there there were and you know they might require you to labor for them but they didn't pay you they just conscripted you you went and build their castle or you or if there was a war they were like hey you have to come fight for me you know uh all of that changes in the in the what we call the modern period and so modern thought is really instead of being esoteric it is what is most embedded in the fundamental assumptions that Seem to ground the entire way in which our global economy functions. I mean, it was like to me, like the COVID crisis, you know, was a really interesting uh, phenomenon. I mean, it was horrible and tragic, and but just as an intellectual, because everything I teach and learn and like try to communicate, it it was all completely self-evident. Like suddenly, like. The economy is shut down, society shut down, transportation shut down, you know, like oh, here's this virus that you know, viruses are really weird, interesting things. They are they living, are they not living? You know, are they animate or are they inanimate? Actually, you know what they're they're paradoxical. And this little paradoxical virus that can't move by itself, it can't do anything, but we are the carriers for, because we had developed this global system you know, in which we, you know, offshore production to other places, then we move back and forth, suddenly this inert, you know, animate, inanimate, who knows what, you know, virus could travel everywhere and disrupt everything. And suddenly it was like all of the assumptions that we made about how we lived in the world were just like, this isn't working. It's really not working. Uh, And I was like, oh, well, this, yep, this is what I've been saying for, you know, (laughs) this is what I've been. So, the modern thought really is i mean it's very influenced by Foucault, obviously, my perspective on it, but we're i think you know and, and I think in different parts of the world, it happens in different ways. but I do think that we are in this period of time where these assumptions that you know came to be taken for granted four hundred four three four hundred years ago and are underwriting you know these large systems i mean they seem to be kind of falling apart you yeah. know I mean that that I seems
0: I just want to sort of check if I'm right on my so when you're talking about modern thought I do understand you know it's, uh, the emergence of sustainable development goals or uh, people having a by far much more emotive just here, dog economics written by Kate so, would also be sort of uh, Kate uh, Rawat so sh- would it be also very close to something which you'll talk about within the purview of modern thought? Isn't it a moment, modern thought, would, would that be? Yes.
1: Yes. So you know, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Modernity She's is like... On,
0: okay. She has actually absolutely. stressed a lot about, you know, rather than looking at just precision return, you look at, you put a framework of, of sustainable goals or, you know, sort of giving a lot of also a preference to empathy and other factors within the economics world.
1: So that's one of the, the things that we're coming to, I think, increasingly understand you know, both within economic systems, but say within environmental systems and the interaction between economic systems and environmental systems, right? That uh, what people have assumed as being the most important variables uh, actually may uh, have really definite limits that actually may have created a lot of problems and that certain things that were uh excluded like affect right or uh or connectivity rather than separation or um uh intuition or you know that the a lot of the a lot of the capacities that we have that our resources for how we live in the world have been devalued because what the, the notion that the most important value that we have is profit and productivity ruled the world, came to rule the world. And unfortunately, that has really deleterious consequences for actually most of the people in the world. Actually, most of the people in the world have not really benefited from that particular way of, of bifurcating our capacity as living beings. Um, And so, yes, so I think, you know, a lot of people right now are are kind of recognizing that hopefully more and more and more, because we really need uh, to have a a new way of thinking. And what's wonderful about modern thought is to understand, well, the way that we think now and the way that, you know, the things that we take as self-evident, actually, they were invented, people invented them precisely in order to change how they live together, in order to change. You know the way that monarchs ruled over their subjects and they could kill them, they could imprison them, they could take their property, they could take their children, they could take you know i mean that 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 people invented these new strategies you know for living individualism, wage labor rights, you know in order to carve out spaces that were not subject to the kinds of violence that monarchs could Im- impose upon their subjects with impunity, right? Um, and so, at the time that they were developed, I mean, they were, let's call it progressive. They were, you know, they opened up possibilities. But but now they're limiting. You know, they they worked for a while. I mean, and 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 some people really benefited a lot. Some people, you know, in sl- like enslaved people in North America, you know who were trafficked as property from Africa to the Americas, they did not benefit from this particular way of thinking, you know, that they were not included, you know, in the ambit of what it meant to be an actual human being and that had rights. They had no rights. They were property. Right. So it's not saying everybody, I mean, the benefits were parceled out, you know, very inequitably, but, and yet, you know, for more people, and this is what people say even now, in terms of like the sustainability goals of you know the UN sustainability goals, I mean, it is the case that you know fewer people in the world live in abject poverty, you know, than they might have 50 years ago. That that's true. I'm just saying that's a really low bar.
0: Uh, that, that's a low bar. I do understand one point nine dollars per. <laughs> day uh, but uh, at least it's a start
1: But that's the thing is like you know
0: anchor point, you could so say.
1: time you know to introduce some new ways of thinking about value you know that are larger than economic values that so economic values are not the only are not the be all and end all of value you know And that there are human values, you know, there are social values, there are psychological values, there are there environmental values, there are spiritual values, right? And those, that kind of values may not be quantifiable. You know, they might not fill in a balance sheet.
0: Yeah, right. in the art she, she was doing this for New Zealand where well-being or wellness is becoming an index. Even the Scandinavian countries are taking it very seriously now. Do you talk about modern art? Uh, how do you equate this? Did you about women's equality? Would there be a framework you bring in? Um.
1: So so I teach um uh, in a department. It's called Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies. So it's uh, it's a kind of capacious category. Um, so one of the, you know, so again, we approach it like historically. So first of all, like the idea of rights, like where did that idea come from? So, you know, we think about that historically, but even like what the idea of sexual difference is, like, well, what does it mean to be a woman? So, I mean, that really has a lot of different changes. But one of the really important changes that occurred, at least in a kind of European and then colonial context, was that when the world was dominated by the church, like by Christianity, right? The idea of sexual difference was that Eve ate the apple in the Garden of Eden or whatever she ate and caused the downfall of paradise. And God decided that, punish Adam and Eve by kicking them out of paradise and saying, Eve, you bad girl, you, because you disobeyed me, you will be, you know, forced to give birth, you know, in pain and suffering. And you will go forth, you know, and with your children and what and so this idea that, you know, well, yeah, men and women were different. But, you know, women were damned basically by God for the disobedience of Eve to, you know, have this like relationship of subservience to men. Right. And that they were then like supposed to live in this pain and suffering or whatever. Um, In the 18th century. uh, Things begin to change, partly because uh, the way, you know, the power of the church, you know, is less dominant in a certain sense, but also because something new occurs, which is that uh, humans begin to be imagined as a species like other living beings. Until 1748, human beings were never part of, uh, human beings were considered to be special beings, that God, you know, the, the Christian European God gave human beings reason and language that other animals don't have, and so humans were supposed to have what the word is dominion over the earth and over the animals and the plants of the earth. And we were supposed to go forth and multiply. And, you know, that was like the So uh, but in, the, in 1748, this man named Linnaeus, um, he's the one who, who invented the term homo sapiens. And he was the first person to say, well, humans are animals like other animals. Uh, well, or he's more it's more like humans are, are living beings like other living beings. And then there was another person at the same time whose name was Buffal, George Leclerc Buffal, who he was the first person who defined species and he's in this way. And he said, species is the sexual reproduction of individuals from one generation to the next. So that's what a species is. So humans became a species, and that species was defined. In terms of sexual reproduction, where sexual reproduction was defined by the opposition of, of men and women right so what what women what women women became you know the meaning changed fundamentally uh, in relationship to uh, how uh, how people experience themselves how you know they were able to make certain kinds of claims like to rights or to legal responsibility, like women, you know, in, again, in, you know, in a European context, mostly, but had no rights to themselves, their their own bodies. Like the idea of like rape within marriage. Hey, there, there's no rape within marriage. You could, if your husband, you're married, no, your body is his body. He can do whatever he wants. Your property is his property. He can do whatever he wants. Right. That. The idea that women could make claims to being uh, full human subjects in the way that men were—that that is only begins to be possible really after the French Revolution in, you know, and that is the beginning, the first wave of what we think of as feminism now. Really, Mary Wollstonecraft in in 1795 wrote The Vindication of the Rights of Women. She had lived in France during the revolution. And she is really the first person, the first woman, the first person to make this argument, you know, that hey, women have rights. You know. Uh, so, you know, what uh you know, so what we try of,
0: to do you know, renaissance a lot of then, like you correctly mentioned. Uh, the feminism movement sort of came from the Western world where they wanted equal rights. and
1: Yeah, and it's not that, I mean, this is what, so like in my, like my PhD students are are from all over the world. And actually we have a lot, for some reason, we have a, a lot of students from India and well, actually from South Asia, from India, from Bangladesh, from Pakistan. Um, we also have a lot of students from Africa. We have students from all over the world. And, you know, it's very interesting because it isn't necessarily the case that the paradigms that were invented in European and American contexts actually can be easily translated or transferred to these other contexts, right? Or, you know, we, are, we have a lot of students who are from the Middle East, right? And, uh, and you know, in Muslim contexts, right, there, there's very different meanings of what the experience of, of women are, and, you know, so, you know, so one of the things that we try to do is to help students you know who are interested in changing the world because all my students are interested in making the world a better place to live not just for women but for everyone and because one of the things that we understand is that you can't make the world better for like one little group of people especially when that group of people is not little but half of the world so uh you know without without affecting everybody you know So, you know, so what we try to do, you know, what I try to do and what all of my, I have amazing colleagues who also do incredible work all over the world doing organizing and thinking. And uh, so, you know, what we try to help students do, you know, and this is a psychological thing is like, not just to teach them knowledge, but to help them develop tools that they can use to think about their lives and the lives of those people that they're connected to in order to live more uh, gracefully, more substantially, more um, vividly, you know, and to help others do that as well. Um, So that's, you know, so, you know, thinking as far as, you know, and that's the nice thing about the kind of work I'm in, you know, or the field I teach in, rather than like a traditional discipline, like philosophy or history or sociology or economics, you know, because those are all predicated on the other, you're going to be objective, and that there's this real thing that you're going to do. And, you don't, and it's not like, oh, you know what, I, I should be changed by the things that I'm learning. You know, like Foucault, my hero, says, what's the point of writing a book if you're the same person at the, when you finished writing the book as when you started writing the book? Why did you write the book? Yeah,
0: yeah that's I understand. The thought would change. Yes. you change as And you should change.
1: Attention. It's not just, yeah, the thoughts should change and you and the thinking should change you. Right. I mean, that thinking, you know, we are thinking beings, Yeah. You know? so so that's that's how I would explain what, what we do and, and why I'm in the world that I'm in, because um, I actually don't teach very much. I mean, I don't work on gender and sexuality very much anymore.